0: Well, it's wonderful to see you all here this evening. We have folks who are back from travels, folks who are getting ready to leave on some travels. Um, I'm sure the fact that the church is air conditioning Lord, some of us here this evening. And uh, we don't have air conditioning in our home. We know there's some others in the parish like that, too. So, um, But it's good to, to be together. And uh, tonight's readings are... Um, it was hard to really know what to think about to preach on this week there's some some great text here and so uh, hopefully i can do justice to a couple of them um it's not that uh you know when you hit ordinary time and uh there was i was recently somewhere where um uh, people were debating if it should even be called ordinary time, but you know the the green season or however you want to think about it, and and uh, we work our way through books if you've noticed, but oftentimes we skip several chapters at a time. Like last week, we were in Second Corinthians eight, and today's reading is Second Corinthians twelve, and it's it's not like other seasons where there's clearly more of a theme that you can can think about and pick up on. And so last week, you know, we talked about giving and principles of giving that Paul had established, and and uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, but tonight, Paul, in this chapter, as we've jumped ahead a few, Paul is now talking about uh, these, this experience that he's had. And most commentators say that this is, this is Paul. It's not, it's not Paul actually talking about someone else. He's talking about himself using a bit of a, uh, a device just so he doesn't look like he's boasting in this experience he's had. And so as I thought about this reading from 2 Corinthians this week, I thought about how in many ways... In this reading Paul is describing kind of bookends if you will of Christian experience. Bookends of what our lives could look like and and I've been just praying for things in the past couple weeks that are weighing on uh, individuals, you know, lives in our parish um, you know, everything from uh, Dave Clark's surgery. Uh, a few weeks ago at the vestry meeting, Megan mentioned needing roommates and lots of things in between. As I prayed for that, it made me realize that, like, that is normal of the Christian life, that, that sometimes, you know, all is, is going smoothly, things are going great, and other times they're not. And so it dawned on me that, you know, Paul is kind of describing this in one sense, one bookend, he's called up into paradise, Yet on the other hand, he's given a thorn in the flesh. And so let's look at those two moments of Paul's life. So caught up into paradise, it's Paul's language here in 2 Corinthians. You know, he he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Right? This man was caught up into paradise. And again, commentators say, no, this is Paul. It's just Paul being modest and not falsely so. Paul doesn't want to boast And that he's had this experience and so um, this happened to Paul during his so-called silent years there's a good decade of his life after his conversion that we don't know anything about uh, other than the fact that Galatians tells us he was in Syria and Cilicia but we don't know what he was doing there Um, probably certainly continuing his education I'm sure being formed in the new Christian faith Uh, that he had adopted on his way to Damascus. Uh, But the Acts of the Apostles say nothing about these 10 years. But commentators are pretty sure then that this experience happened in those 10 years just simply by the date of him saying 14 years ago I knew a man, and so we don't know what's going on in Paul's life, but we do know that he's having experiences, he's having visions, at least one vision, uh, if not more, and so he tells us about this one vision, again, that he's caught up into paradise, and in paradise there, that that word, that language coming from someone, um, a Jew like Paul, trained in the way he had been trained, paradise here is the abode of the righteous, and he says himself that it's located in the third heaven. So again, this is the abode of the righteous dead located in the third heaven. Now the the language there is actually located like in the third realm of the heavens. right? So this this kind of cosmology is the fact that the heavens have gradations in them. and this is this is common both in Jewish and Greek thought uh, to think that souls pass through different levels on their way to the afterlife. and So much so that in in the Byzantine period, a a tradition had developed that you had to pay your way to kind of toll booth collectors along the way. It sounds like a government's running it, right? And so, you know, if you're going to use this road to get to the abode of the righteous, you've got to pay something. And of course, well, how am I going to pay it if I'm dead? Oh, no, you pay it while you're living, right, so that you can pass through. So these these gradations were something that were common, and so Paul is adopting that common way of, of thinking and uh, so when he says I'm going to paradise or I was caught up into paradise again that's the abode of the righteous dead located in the third heaven right so this is during Paul's silent time he's called up to that place where those who who were faithful uh, Jews those who believed in Yahweh are abiding waiting for the eschaton to happen and Paul is called up to there but yet Paul doesn't then say and then here's what I did when I got there right consciousness of god has eclipsed his awareness of the physical world of space and time he doesn't know if he was in body or out of body right this this presence of god in that realm has so taken over his mind and his experience if you will that he isn't even aware if he was caught up bodily or out of the body or something like that and and for those of us that have read dante's divine comedy you start getting an image here of like Paradise, where Dante starts saying things very early in Paradiso about how words cannot express what I experienced, right? It would take transhuman words to communicate what I've experienced, and Paul is the same way. He doesn't tell us what happens to him in this vision or this experience, but we know it's so full of God that he can't communicate anything other than that And so as we start stepping back and thinking like, okay, Paul is Paul. Maybe this is an experience that's just unique to Paul, right? That that God gave this experience to Paul and we shouldn't expect anything like this. It would even be wrong perhaps to aspire to, to pray for something towards this end. But the verse that's elided from our readings tonight, verse 1, unfortunately, Paul talks about visions and revelations there just as if they're like talking about getting up and having breakfast in the morning, right? This is a normal experience of the time. It is normal. It's it's somewhat normative to have visions and revelations. And and this is a vision Paul's describing, a revelation, of course, to be a word from God. But this this is normal. And Paul's saying that in this experience, which is unique and special, and he doesn't want to boast in it. At the same time, it's, it's kind of normative to be called up and to have this experience of God along with the righteous dead, so much so that you're not sure if you did it in your body or outside of your body. But Paul does say he knows that it happened suddenly. The word called up there is the same word that we might think of as the rapture. It's used in Acts chapter 8 to describe Philip's immediate departure from the Ethiopian eunuch. And it's used in reference to believers in First Thessalonians about how we will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. So Paul says, look, I, didn't, I wasn't sitting around and slowly started having this experience. It was, it was rapturous. It happened in a minute. I was caught up and it, and it happened. And I was so aware of God that I'm not aware exactly of myself, uh, how exactly I was experiencing that. But I know where I went, to the abode of the righteous dead in the third heaven, and I um, I'm not going to boast in it, but th- that's what—that's in general the details. And Paul then says, "What happened, I can't describe in human words." Again, like Dante he says, "I cannot describe what happened to me; they're beyond human words." So he doesn't try. Right. The point of this wasn't for Paul then to come back and have a message for people or a word for the believers in Corinth. And Paul is, again is just simply describing this. And the point of this vision, if you will, the point of even Paul telling this vision, but he says, the point of this vision was to strengthen him for future service and suffering. Right? So in Paul's mind, what this was all about was God preparing him for the future. What was to come? The service that he would have to render to God, but also the suffering that he would have to endure. Right? It's like going through a difficult season of life, perhaps as an example, unemployment and remembering when you were gainfully employed and you knew where the next paycheck was literally going to come from. And so this vision becomes that for Paul. It becomes a reference point for him that no matter what he's going through, he's had this experience of God. And that experience strengthened him. It strengthened his resolve in order to endure the other bookend, which is the low point. Right, which is the fact that Paul was given the thorn in the flesh, a thorn in the flesh. Now, who knows what this was, but Paul says, I'm not going to boast in that vision, but I actually will boast about this thorn in the flesh. He's like, that's something I will talk about. That is something I will make a big deal about, again, because this was given to me by God to keep me from becoming conceited. That is the way the text is presenting Paul's thorn in the flesh, that it keeps him from becoming conceited, right? It's like like finishing a project, you're convinced that it was perfect, and then as soon as it's like in its final form, you look at it and you say, oh, how did I misspell that word, right? It happened to me with the publication of a book. I fancy myself to have a good eye for editing, the publisher pays a professional editor and proofreader to do it and then I get a message one day where someone says "Ooh," and it was kind of the worst I don't I guess I'll give you the example the word was supposed to be public the L was missing so of all the misspellings right so like It's terrible. It's in the story of monasticism. You can go hunt through the book if you want, if you own it, or if you don't, go get out of the library, look for it. It's in there. I mean, how frustrating is that, right? Of all the mistakes to make, I didn't catch it, Baker Academic didn't catch it, you know, there's such an, but someone did. Yes, this reader caught it, in fact, and pointed it out, right? So that, right when you're about ready to boast in something, right, then you say, oh, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Don't look too closely. There's this thing there, right? So, so that's what this thorn in the flesh is. Lest Paul thinks about becoming conceited about the vision itself or subsequently his own ministry, the thorn in the flesh keeps Paul from boasting in those things. It's a constant daily reminder. We know from the text that it was given to Paul soon after being called up into paradise. So again, this is kind of the bookend nature of it, that after having this experience, right, and, and, and again, like, maybe those visionary experiences aren't normative, something we should necessarily be waiting for, but if you were to have one of those and then immediately to be given this kind of thorn to, to remind you of just how human and normal you actually are, it came immediately after that vision. And so, though it is unclear what this thorn actually is, scholars have wasted um, good energy trying to think about that, but there's no way to, to know for sure. Um, We know that God did not deliver Paul from it. So whether that was a physical affliction, whether it was a spiritual affliction, whatever it was, God never delivered Paul from it. And so Paul took comfort in God's response to his request that it be taken away, that God's grace was sufficient. So Paul says three times he asked for it to be taken away. Now I'm thinking to myself, if I had an enduring thing that kept reminding me, right, something that I would think of as a thorn in the flesh, I would be asking God like three times a day, right? And depending on how bad it is, maybe three times an hour, right? Um, But Paul says at three times, three different times, he asked God to take it from him. God did not remove it, but he said, my grace is sufficient. So Paul took comfort in God's assurance of his sufficiency of his grace. So even though we don't know what it is, we know it never left Paul But it constantly reminded him of God's sufficiency of grace. And so Paul says, because of that, because I'm reminded of God's sufficiency, therefore I will be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And I think what Paul is getting at there is Paul is saying, as the man who had this vision, I could have reason to boast about kind of who I am and my experience. But I'm not going to do that mostly because I have this thorn in my flesh constantly reminding me about the reality of the opposite end of the spectrum, if you will. And even though I would really like for that to be gone, God will not take it away, but He constantly reminds me that His grace is sufficient. And so Paul latches onto that grace is sufficient. And he says, and because of that, I can endure weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities, right? And that's more or less what Paul says to the disciples in the gospel reading from tonight, right? What it drew me to the gospel reading tonight to think about really reflecting on that is, of course, that's the base text for the whole mendicant monastic movement, go out and kind of beg for your living, right? But the point there isn't, the focus isn't on the disciples in Mark's account. The focus is on the people who turn those disciples away, right? So Jesus isn't so much setting up a paradigm for how his disciples are supposed to go about spreading the gospel. Instead, their mistreatment, their being turned away, if you will, their insults, their hardship, their kind of form of persecution by being turned away says something about the people doing that turning away more than it says anything about the form of ministry that the disciples have adopted. And so as we think about both those who have the benefit of being in relationship with Jesus Christ and and thinking about the way that our lives can reflect something like being caught up into paradise, experiencing the blessings of God, all the way down to feeling like God has left us, right, And John to the Cross language, everything from Uh, you know, God's light shining on us to the darkness of God's absence, right? That in between those, even though that might be paradigmatic of our experience or Paul might be thinking about this as extremes and there's lots of in-betweens, the gospel is reminding us that where are we both the person receiving perhaps some of that insult and weakness and persecution, but also are we the one causing such things? It gives us an opportunity to reflect on how am I living my life as a Christian, not just as one who receives, but as one who gives out as well. Um, just as an example, as I wrap up, this week, um, our neighbors, Nick and Michelle, um, who we've gotten to know really well over the years, uh, their two sons have been through our uh, Christina's daycare. They've been here a number of times with us, and, and uh, about... Last spring, Nick started remodeling his kitchen by necessity because of a leak, and then we did our kitchen, and then he kind of went on and he through his other parts of his house. So he's been kind of perpetually renovating his house for a good year now. And a matter of fact, I joked with him the other day. He said, well, the tile work is finally done. And I said, but what will I eat my dinner to if it's not the sweet sounds of the tile saw that I've been hearing for so long? But, but Nick's redoing their master bathroom. And you maybe saw this on our Facebook page. And they ordered a custom vanity, and the vanity came. And the problem was the vanity was, was already together. The, the countertop was already glued down and attached to the vanity. So the vanity now weighed four or 500 pounds And it needed to go up a narrow set of stairs, could not be turned sideways on the landing, right? you You have to get it up the stairs, tilt it. He had to take his railing off the turn, the other set of stairs, so he could tilt it up, and then try to slide it this way so that it then could go up the rest. And so Nick's like, you know, can you help? Yeah, I, how many other people are coming? Sure, I can help, but like, let's, get some, let's get some more help. And Nick's like, I just, I just don't know people to ask. And I said, all right, I'll try to find some people. So I put up a message on the Facebook page, put up a mess- message at work. We got a couple of uh, more people over. And so uh, there Friday afternoon, because why wouldn't you do it in 5.30 heat on Friday, we, uh, we, we took this vanity and we got it in place. We didn't scratch a wall. We didn't break anything. Um, It worked Nick had designed on the computer that it would in fact fit and and go up the stairs correctly right on his little 3d design program So I had I knew we weren't going to get it halfway up and then have to bring it back down and and we got it up and they were so excited and they were so thankful and so happy and I was not needing to lift that kind of weight and that kind of heat at that time of the day but I was really glad to do that for Nick and Michelle and mostly thinking about it as like, what is my word of testimony here? What, what can I do to show myself just to be someone who likes my neighbor, right? Who loves my neighbor, who wants to be a, a Christian to my neighbor? And so moving that in the heat of the day is, again, not necessarily what I wanted to do, but we did it. And I think in that small way left a bit of a testimony there about the way Christians will step up because everyone that came over to help were other believers. And so, and we had a good time doing it as well. Um, We were high-fiving each other when it finally got into place. We enjoyed ourselves. It got done. And so as we think about our own paradigmatic existence as believers, let us also think about the way that we treat other believers, but also other people. And with the example of Paul before us, not to be conceited, about the way things can go so well for us in our Christian life, not to become discouraged when things aren't going well, but to live in the sufficiency of God's grace. And mostly as we encounter people to treat them in the way that they deserve to be treated with honor and respect and dignity, not being someone who adds insult or affliction or hardship, but instead someone who demonstrates love to them and to God as our collect this evening encouraged us to do. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.